FAA's newly named federal air surgeon shares her insights on the agency's ongoing work in the COVID-19 environment. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is a special extended episode of Flight Plan. I'm Rob Finfrock with your trusted source for business aviation news. In January, Dr. Susan Northrup was appointed as U.S. Federal Air Surgeon at the FAA, where she will oversee the agency's medical initiatives and aeromedical education programs. She brings to that role extensive backgrounds in medicine and aviation. Doug Carr, NBAA's Senior Vice President of Safety, Security, Sustainability, and International Operations, recently spoke with Dr. Northrup, and we're now pleased to bring you that conversation. Dr. Northrup, we're, we're glad to have you here today. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. It seems like aviation is really in your blood. You're a pilot, your husband's a pilot, your sons are pilots. You've got a couple of airplanes, a Stearman that you're restoring. You've got a T-6 Texan. Man, that really sounds like a pretty awesome background for somebody that's now in this role at the FAA. Well, thank you. I've been in aviation my entire career. Grew up at the end of the runway at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So yeah, I've been watching planes since I, I have my first memories. That's fantastic. And and I think one of the big firsts here is that from the research I've done, you're you're the first female to take on this role of the federal air surgeon at the FAA. That's incredible. It's a pretty awesome time, it sounds like, to be a doctor at the FAA. Can you share with us a little bit about that FAA journey that you began a little while ago and now your current role at the agency? So I started with the FAA in 2007. Uh, I was hired as the regional flight surgeon for the Southern region, which includes eight states, the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. Loved that job. Got to deal with Airman Medical Certification, a privilege that we share with the Airman Medical Certification Division in Oklahoma City. Uh, we have the Air Traffic Control Health Specialist Program. So for those of you that were in the military, for the airmen, we're a bit like a major commander or waiver authority. Uh, for the air traffic controllers, we're more like a squadron level flight surgeon, where every time uh, an air traffic controller goes to see a, a doctor or a, a provider or takes medication, they have to call a regional flight surgeon to be sure they are allowed to work with that medication or treatment. I also was responsible for the Aviation Medical Examiner designee program in the Southern region. So I had in the neighborhood of 500 to 600 AMEs, so the people that can do aviation medical examinations. We had the Internal Substance Abuse Program. So for employees of the FAA that are part of safety-sensitive or security positions that require drug and or alcohol testing, and then we did a little bit of occupational health on the side. In January 2017, I became the senior regional flight surgeon in addition to the regional flight surgeon's position, which meant I had operational responsibility for the regional program uh, throughout the country, trying to ensure that no matter which region you called, you got a similar answer with a similar set of circumstances. It was a, a bit of a challenge here and there as we got through lapses of appropriation and how to make sure that our critical functions continued to be sure that we kept the national airspace safe. And then when COVID hit back in March of 2020, we ended up being a member of the incident management team, which is how the FAA coordinated our response to COVID-19 uh, for both external and internal stakeholders. And then I was fortunate enough to be selected as a federal air surgeon in January of this year. Talk about a journey. It sounds like a lot of your background is going to serve you well in this role at the head of the office. And your focus on COVID, I think we saw the FAA really take some uh, some really forward-leaning roles in its advocacy for keeping 
pilots in the air, if we're keeping air traffic controllers on the job, with some of the medical alleviations that were provided through this through the SFAR, SFAR 118. What was it like at the FAA as COVID arrived on your doorsteps and now you're faced with trying to address, I would say, as, as many situations <laughs> as there were pilots out there uh, when it came to COVID? So we were a critical part of the nation's response to keeping the national airspace up and running in a, four major areas. So there's the air traffic organization response, extending airmen medical certifications, approving vaccinations for use by airmen, and then the national and international aviation recovery guidance and proposals. So let's start with the early days of the pandemic. On March 17th, uh, we had our first series of cases in one of our air traffic control facilities. And you may recall that Midway Tower in Chicago was closed for eight days. They went from doing 30 to 40 operations an hour to four because the pilots had to come in through some metering devices uh, using some of our the, the tracons and the, the centers and, of course, our visual flight rules. And we, up till then, had been pretty reliant on local and public health departments to respond to public health emergencies. Well, it became apparent to us in a big hurry that the public health departments were overwhelmed and they could not provide the level of occupational response that we needed. So the regional flight surgeons program pivoted and luckily many of us have masters of public health and we developed our own contact tracing forms. We developed uh, in conjunction with air traffic what it would look like as we protected our workforce and kept the airspace functional. You probably noticed as COVID rolled across the country that there were intermittent ATC zeros across the country as we ended up with cases and then had to clean the facilities afterwards to be sure that the environment was safe. Luckily, we've got some things in place now at our major facilities where we do intermittent augmented cleaning on a daily basis so that it's rare that we have a positive case in a facility that we haven't already done a cleaning between the last time they were in the facility and the first onset of symptoms. So we have been very close with both the air traffic organization and the bargaining units or unions uh, that represent the employees. So you take that to the next level. In March of 2020, the federal air surgeon at the time, Dr. Mike Berry, and I had a conversation about what are we going to do as the healthcare facilities and doctor's offices become overwhelmed, or quite frankly, some physicians just shut their doors. And how do we make sure that individuals with a pilot's license and a medical certificate to exercise those privileges can continue to function because these pilots were incredibly important to the response. As airlines and every all the cargo carriers flipped to carrying personal protective equipment needed by the healthcare providers and facilities. So we had a discussion with flight standards and the rulemaking offices and the attorneys, of course, in March. And before the end of March, managed to get the first alleviations in place through the SFAR. The first one took a certificates expiring between March and May and extended everything to June 30th. As the crisis continued to evolve, these measures were extended for three months for examinations expiring between 30 March and 30 September of 2020. In September, the certificates expiring the 31st of October through January 2021 for the CONUS in Hawaii, we extended those two months, except Alaska, where we extended for three months. 
So these measures put in place allowed the separation of well pilots from ill people until administrative and engineering measures could be put in place in the physician's offices and for some offices to reopen. We worked very closely with our aviation medical examiners to identify where we had gaps in coverage. But the good news is we kept the airspace running and the pilots kept right on going and doing their jobs that are so critical to our economy. So I mentioned vaccinations. Before COVID-19, the Office of Aerospace Medicine had never approved a medication or treatment that was not fully approved by the FDA for at least a year. However, given the critical nature of attaining herd immunity, to date, we have approved three vaccines approved by the FDA under emergency use authorizations. And we published guidance to airmen and air traffic controllers allowing return to duties that required an airman medical certificate or a clearance. We put a limitation of 48 hours following each inoculation and that weight is due to the high percentage of side effects that should manifest within 48 hours if they're going to manifest at all. We do caution airmen that 14 CFR 6153 still applies. So if they have continued side effects from the vaccines, they shouldn't fly until those have resolved. And then the international arena. So aerospace medicine personnel served as subject matter experts for ICAO and CAPSCA and Frankly, we authored major portions of the ICAO Testing and Cross-Border Risk Mitigation Manual, which served as the current scientific input for the ICAO CART takeoff guidance. This takeoff guidance has been used to augment the U.S. government's runway to recovery. So the, we were integral and involved in every step of the way to get the guidance suggestions to the operators and to the airmen to safely function within the airspace. That is incredible. I mean, what a journey. There has been so much that's been going on, really, not only behind the scenes, but also in partnership with industry that I think have really been monumental successes in keeping systems working when it would have been just a lot easier to to, to shut things down and let them recover. I mean, the, the, three, the three big things that I think you mentioned here, the facility cleaning protocols that you've put in place, which have significantly reduced the number of ATC zero events that we're seeing which lead to airspace challenges, quite honestly. When airspace shuts down, it it becomes harder to operate. The SFAR, which provided clear guidance for pilots and others with a medical for how their extensions, in this case, particularly dealing with their medicals, were to happen. And then, as you pointed out, this, this novel approach to new medical authorizations for vaccines that have never been done before have, I think, really given a lot of great credibility to the agency and its leadership in in trying to find a pathway forward that keeps us all working, as you said. This is about keeping America functioning, keeping our pilots and supplies in the air and moving, and helping the economy to, to try and get back on its feet at the end of the day. So with that, if I could, wa- wanted to shift just a little bit and talk a little bit about maybe where some of the future COVID-related issues that your office is dealing with. Let's talk about perhaps the the guidance that came out in late March dealing with pilots who faced, let's, let's call it a more severe case of COVID that either put them in the hospital or in more serious situations, put them in the ICU. The FAA has come out with some additional guidance on how those pilots should be treated when it comes time for their next FAA medical exam. Could you share a little bit about the considerations and where you see that headed going forward as, as more of the community gets, gets vaccinated? Certainly. So the guidance that we put out at the end of March essentially 
as we learn more and more about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, we're discovering that certain people have what is being termed long-haul COVID. And those can be respiratory in nature, they can be cardiac in nature, they can be brain fog or cognitive. We're even seeing some issues with mental health diagnoses. One statistic I read last week is of all the people infected in the United States, 230,000 people have developed mental health conditions, been diagnosed with them. And when you look at the subset that were in the ICUs, that number goes to four out of 10. So that's concerning. In addition to individuals that are having difficulty uh, exercising because their lungs have been damaged hopefully not permanently, but enough that it makes it difficult for them to oxygenate their blood. So we're looking at this, we've narrowed it down to if you were treated in an intensive care unit, or you have ongoing sequelae or symptoms associated with COVID-19, the AME needs to defer the application. Now, anybody else, the certificate should be issued. There's specific verbiage that we have asked the aviation medical examiners to put into block 60 to indicate to us what level of infection these individuals had. Now, for your constituents, if you want to speed the process and you were treated in an ICU, you can start collecting information to take to your aviation medical examiner. And that would be current clinical summaries, hospital admission and discharge notes, any studies that were done talk with your AMEs because if you're having certain kinds of sequelae from the the, uh, disease, we may ask for additional information. But of course, the goal is to get as many people flying as we possibly can. And the AMEs are always welcome to call the Regional Flight Surgeon's Office or the Airman Medical Certification Division for further guidance. We'll have more of this conversation with Dr. Northrup in just a moment. But first, this word from NBAA. NBAA Flight Plan listeners, if you value the expertise you get from your weekly podcast, we've got a way for you to get answers from experts live. Our NBAA NewsHour webinars give you access to the best operational, legal, technical, and other guidance for business aviation. Participate today by visiting nbaa.org newshour. We're back now with U.S. Federal Air Surgeon Dr. Susan Northrup and NBAA's Doug Carr and their discussion about COVID-19 and other aeromedical concerns of importance to business aviation. Here's Doug. Let me ask if I could, as we look to trying getting back to normal and but still managing pilots that do have some ongoing either long haul challenges as a result of COVID or even other challenges where they whether they be related to COVID, mental health or otherwise. I'm curious regarding whether or not there's a role for some of the other FAA tools that have been used, for example, in the flight standards arena, or the the compliance program in terms of compliance to education rather than compliance to enforcement, I would say generally, has, has a role here in terms of helping pilots to feel comfortable about disclosing real health challenges that could have an impact on their medical certification but in a way that doesn't risk their livelihood. I know it's it, this, this can be somewhat of a challenging situation or, and a topic, but I think it's important that we find a way to incentivize pilots to, to talk about and to get help for challenges that could risk their medical before it really does become something that's disqualifying. Well, you have hit on one of my major goals in my first year as the federal air surgeon, and that's communication. 
and trying to get compliance uh, philosophy embedded in, in a lot of what we do. So in November of last year, we had an aeromedical summit and many of our stakeholders came the first day. So we had both internal and external stakeholders. And for the first day, we listened. Everybody got a chance to speak that was there. They told us what we could do better. They told us what we were doing well and gave us lots of helpful suggestions. And we took these suggestions and turned them into near, medium, and long-term goals. We're also exploring ways to allow electronic submission of records to permit airmen and the AMEs, probably the AMEs to begin, to transmit the documents electronically. There is, of course, a cost associated with this, and we're still figuring out how we would go about doing that. But we do understand that, particularly towards the end of last summer, we had a lot of people sending information to us that was crossing in the mail with our letters asking for it. So our scanning right now is down to less than three days from the time it's received. But getting the electronic ability will make that even better. Another thing we're exploring is a method for airmen to see where their cases are within the FAA medical system. If you can figure out where your pizza is from the time you order it till it hits your door, it would be awfully nice if we could tell you where your medical was. But of course, there are some privacy issues and some protections we're going to have to put in place as we allow people from the outside of our system to view into the system. Electronic medical records in most of the major hospitals can do this. So it's not an insurmountable problem. It's just one we've got to work through the system. We're also actively looking at additional conditions that could be issued under AME Assisted Special Issuances or AASIs and conditions AMEs can issue. You may not be aware, but recently we modified the coronary artery disease special issuance renewals for first and second class certificates. For those individuals that are stable, really stable with their coronary artery disease and don't require a whole bunch of special tests, we can now issue those under AASIs. And we think that's going to affect up to 3,000 airmen that they can take their information to their AME, the AME can review it and issue on the spot. So we've, we've taken this opportunity to really look at how we do airman medical certification from the beginning to the end. We've talked to all of our subject matter experts and we're continuing to work through the process. And as part of that, we've stepped up our communication efforts. So doing things like this, a podcast with you, writing articles. We've reinstituted our Federal Air Surgeons Medical Bulletin the first one came out in January. And the last but not least, and this is something I'm really excited about, we've had what we call an AME Minute, where it's a micro-learning event for aviation medical examiners for a couple of years now. And you subscribe to this, and we send you a notice when we publish one. You can go look a couple times a year. We aim for about eight to nine times a year for one of these to come out. Well, we're going to do this for pilots, too. And we're going to call them Airman Minutes. Because a better informed and educated pilot on how we do things is somebody that can navigate our system with more ease, or at least easier. I'm a little speechless here, just because of all the wonderful things that you've mentioned here. So many things that I think are really going to help pilots work with your office, how they're able to understand where their issue is within the agency how to make sure pilots are are able to tap into the latest and greatest of what's going on. It really seems like this is a new chapter for, for the office in a way that's going to bring a lot of great tools, visibility, and resources to the industry and, and just understanding the process and their part in it. Well, that's the goal. 
the goal is to get everybody we can flying in a safe manner. And while I've never actually earned a living as a pilot, I got lots of people in my life that have. And, and I, I know a grounded pilot is a challenge for everyone. So you raise an interesting point here that I just wanted to peel off a little bit because it sounds like what you're what you're seeing is a direct impact of COVID are pilots who may have not ever had but are now experiencing some mental health issues, perhaps. And that sort of leads to a question just dealing with a, a big focus for NBAA, and I'm sure many other organizations as well, which is pilot fitness for duty that pilot mental health component of making sure that I'm fit to fly, that not only am I meeting regulatory requirements, but mentally I'm, I'm in a good space. Can you weave those two together for us in terms of how maybe we're dealing with perhaps specific challenges that COVID is introducing specifically on pilot mental health, but then on how that weaves into the broader issue of pilot fitness for duty, the mental health component of that, and, and perhaps anything your office is doing that is contributing to that effort? So I would suggest people look at the I'm Safe checklist, and that's available through the FAA.gov website. And it's, it's an inventory that an individual can go through these questions. Did I get enough rest? Is my, my mind not focused on what I'm actively doing right now? Did I eat right? Am I taking any medications that might affect my ability to react? Am I worried about my finances or the fact that my three kids are sick at home and my wife has had enough of it? And pilots, by and large, are really good at compartmentalizing. Almost too good. Well, so I came out of the military, and, and of course, I, I got trained in this a whole lot. So having some introspection about how things are going and whether thoughts and concerns are intruding into what you're doing in any given moment is a really good thing to develop. And then listening to those in your life. But ultimately, 14 CFR 61.53 applies in the civil sector. Every time you step to an airplane, it is the airman's responsibility to think about what they're doing and whether they're ready. Really good advice there. Simple advice. It's some basic considerations about how we make sure when we're set to fly that we're fit to fly so that we're not creating any kind of risk that we can't manage. Maybe one or two final questions here for you, Dr. Northrup. I think with vaccinations increasing, with a pent-up desire for, for travel. I, I think we're going to be seeing growth in air travel again. Reports coming across the news media suggest that we could see a summer travel season, at least domestically and to a degree internationally, that rivals 2019. What are you seeing? What are your, what's your office seeing about this potential resurgence in travel, both domestically and internationally, that may be a response to pent up travel, but also with the recognition that we still have ongoing hotspots around the globe with COVID. We've still got international travel restrictions, whether it be negative test requirements or other types of quarantine that are required as a result of travel. What's your insight on either what the U.S. may be considering or advice for listeners about their own travel considerations for the next several months? That's a great question. So, we are, as a U.S. government, actively involved in the ICAO CART process. For listeners who haven't heard that before, it's, it's the Council Aviation Recovery Task Force that's really, as Dr. Northrop suggested, helping to provide guidance for countries around the globe about how do we restart travel. Yes, exactly. So essentially, 
What the CART documents do is establish the baseline of what you should expect to see, or at least what countries can implement. So there's this whole concept of risk tolerance. And if you've got an economy that is highly dependent on tourism, you might be more risk tolerant than a country that isn't dependent on tourism. So as a result, I think we will continue to see uh, differing levels of requirements state to state. So it's incredibly important that air crew members and travelers in general pay attention to the various websites. The DOT and FAA have a travel safe set of questions and answers. The State Department has some pretty good information on what different nations require. And then each individual will need to make a decision on, on what they're going to do as they travel. Certainly, all of the public health measures need to be followed. And in the U.S., we now have a mask requirement for travel. Now, one of the things that the U.S. government has been continuing to really champion on behalf of the airmen and the air crew members is a reduction in the requirements for these folks as they come and go in various international arenas, particularly if they're part of an, an occupational medicine program at their airline or company where they're routinely tested or asked questions and surveyed. Nonetheless, I think as we get closer and closer to herd immunity, we will see some of these restrictions relax. And one method to get there, and something we're encouraging, of course, is vaccination. And we are continuing to watch the variants as they appear and begin to take a foothold in various countries. But public health quarters, which are part of the CAPSCA ICAO manual, and there's an IPAC or a, a training program that countries can, can get from ICAO, are bilateral or multilateral agreements between nation states on what they will accept. For instance, there's one between Israel and Greece right now that if you have been fully immunized with Pfizer or Moderna, so the mRNA currently approved vaccines, you don't need to quarantine providing you have a negative test. And in the U.S., for travelers entering the U.S. or crew members entering the U.S., if you are fully immunized, which means you've had the full series plus two weeks and a negative test, there's no need to quarantine. So stay, stay tuned. As we learn more and more about this disease and how our countermeasures are taking effect, things will change. I think that's the takeaway that you really hit on there, Dr. Northrup, is that conditions are changing. Stay tuned. Don't let news you heard yesterday define your plans for tomorrow because things could definitely have changed between them. Right. And I really encourage people to go look at the source documents. Occasionally, what's reported in the media may be an overstatement of what's published. Exactly. And on that, NBAA's website at nbaa.org slash coronavirus has a whole host of official documents from FAA, from CDC, from other official sources that can help our community understand what's the latest and greatest with, with the news. I know we're coming down here to the wire here, but I want to sort of turn this over to you, Dr. Northrop. I'm sure there's a lot on your plate beyond just COVID, beyond just uh, some of the international travel considerations and fitness for duty. Your office tackles a whole lot of complex issues and just wanted to see if there was anything on your radar that you think ought to be on our radar. I think now is the time we really, really have to pay attention to each other and our own mental well-being. And we touched on this a bit earlier. Given the aberrations and interruptions in, in aviation with decreased number of flights and furloughs and layoffs and, and all the stuff, 
people are stressed and it's critical that we take care of each other and get the help we need for ourselves and our families. Check on each other regularly and make sure you're taking care of yourself, eating well, exercising, staying home when you're sick and reach out if you need help. There's a lot of assets out there that can ease the burdens. Love that approach, Dr. Northrup. Love the advice. This has been a struggle for everyone this past year and really through our connectivity with each other, with our support of each other, that's really where we're going to find some of the best help that's available out there. With that, I can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been a really insightful discussion with you. I know our members, the business aviation community and GA community largely have, have a really great relationship with the FAA and with your office in particular. We want to be a help for you. So if you see opportunities for us to provide insight, awareness, or feedback on projects you're working on, please look to us for that insight and assistance. We've got a whole host of aviation and medical professionals connected with us as well. And we want to be as much help for you as you are for us. I will take you up on that. And certainly as we get products that we would like to get out to the pilots, we will be giving you a call. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts in the App Store, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including by asking Alexa or another connected device, or download them from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for a new episode of Flight Plan. Flight Plan.